0: Black lives matter, they've always mattered. We love hosting this podcast, but this is our time to listen, not talk. On this episode, Adventure Nannies On Air is featuring black leaders from the nanny community and other industries. Today's episode is facilitated by Daniel Sadler, our communications director. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we did.
1: Hello, welcome to Adventure Nannies On Air. My name is Danielle Sadler. I'm the Director of Communications here at Adventure Nannies, and it is my honor to introduce you today to our incredible guest, Rachel Wilch. Rachel Wilch is 39 years old and was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Her dad is a Kenyan immigrant, and her mom is a white transplant from Iowa. Rachel's dad was largely absent from her life, so it was mostly just her mom and her growing up. She grew up in mostly white spaces and it wasn't until she went away to New York City for college that she really came into her own identifying as a black woman of color. After New York, Rachel moved to Portland, Boston, New Orleans, and then San Francisco. She's now back in her hometown of Seattle and married to an amazing fellow town John and they live just a few blocks from where Rachel grew up with their wonderful 22 month old son named Ernie. Rachel currently works for local government as a transportation planner. Welcome, Rachel.
0: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
1: I'm so glad to have you. I really appreciate you taking the time to to be with us here today. You bet. So, without further ado, let's jump into some of these topics that we are wanting to discuss. So, one of the things that I'm really excited to to share with our listeners today is your perspective, Rachel. And you have had so much experience living uh, now not only as an incredible human, as a Black woman, as a mother, and as a partner. And I'm really just so grateful for your perspective here. So, one of the topics that we are kind of interested in diving into is... You know, how do you, as a Black woman, engage with coworkers who express racist tendencies?
0: I think that's a great question. And, you know, it obviously depends on sort of how something comes up or uh, exactly what's said. And I think, you know, sometimes your impulse is to, like, stand up. You know, you're in the middle of a meeting or something like that, and someone says something that is so overtly racist and awful. Your inclination is to stand up and say, that's totally Uh, Horrible. I I have a a colleague who said something recently that really captured how I want to respond in situations like this. And she talked about whether you want to be right or be successful or effective. And I think um, for me, in my experience, the being right answer is like standing up and saying what you said is totally awful. And I think being effective, really trying to help someone see see what they said and to get a better handle on what it was that they were intending um, is to like engage somebody privately. I think it's really high stakes when you call someone out uh, around racism. And I think especially um, if it's a a colleague, an equal, um, really finding a way to talk to them uh, about what they said to try to understand where they were coming from and to try to help them understand how regardless of what their intent was, the effect was um, something hurtful and racist is the most, in my experience, the most likely way to have someone really hear you uh, take seriously what you've said and hopefully change the way that they think and say things in the future. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think I also... You know, I, I've been in situations before where someone says something and it's not necessarily directed at me, it's directed at somebody else. And I think, you know, in that situation, I've asked the person who seemed to be the sort of target of a comment or an incident, uh, uh, asked them what it was that they heard and how it made them feel and offered to, you know, approach someone if it seemed like something that um, was racist or hurtful to the to the person who was victimized, right. I guess you know, rather than assuming that they need to be rescued or assuming that they heard it the same way I did, I'm really giving them an opportunity to describe their own experiences with what was said and offer to be an ally in any way that is useful to them, but not not in with my own assumptions. Mm.
1: I think that's such a, an important distinction to make where you're not necessarily just going to make the assumption that what you heard and what it sort of impacted you is is. Necessarily going to be the same as it it was for the person for whom it was directed towards. So taking that sort of responsibility to say, okay, I want to be an ally to this person. I personally felt like what was said in direction to them was really inappropriate, but it is not my job. um, And it may be really considered in a lot of ways, kind of silencing the other person to sort of jump in and try to, like you said, rescue them. I think it's so smart to instead say, I'm going to pull them aside and and sort of get a sense of how they're feeling and what they heard and if they really would like that support from me. So they know they've got me in their corner that I'm happy to go to bat for them and and have that conversation with the person who said or did the inappropriate thing on their behalf. But I'm not necessarily going to just assume that that's what they want me to do.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: That's so. That's such a, an important distinction, you know. So next, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about anti-racism um, in the work environment. And for our listeners, I just wanted to kind of clarify a little bit what that means, because I know, you know, growing up in the different environments that each of us have, hearing the the concept of anti-racist uh, can sound a little bit jarring at first. And one of the people that I really look up to, who is actually also a Seattle resident, Ijeoma Olua, who's a New York Times bestseller for her incredible book, So You Want to Talk About Race. And one of the things that she shared on social media that I just keep coming back to, it really hit me so hard, uh, was the concept that anti-racism versus, quote unquote, I'm not racist, Uh, the difference between those two being that. When you're anti-racist, you are acknowledging that as a citizen, a white person in the world right now, you have been positively impacted by white supremacy because we're living in this systematic oppression of people of color and black people specifically. So the concept of anti-racism for our listeners is is not that you are saying, "I, I am devoid of racism, I am not racist, but it is instead acknowledging that because of the benefits um, that white people are born into, there is a, sort of an, a buying into of the idea of systematic oppression and white supremacy. So instead of saying, oh, I'm not racist, I would never say something racist. I'm not a racist, I have black friends, I have black cousins, uh, which you know I hear a lot. Instead saying, you know what, I'm not gonna work on trying to defend where I'm not racist in quotes. But instead, I'm going to work diligently to acknowledge that I have benefited from some of the oppression over the course of the last 400 years of black people. So as a white person, my responsibility is to work to be anti-racist, to be open to acknowledging when and where racism happens in and around our lives and being willing to dig into that and tackle that and understand and learn you know, how we can do better. And I think that's such an important distinction to say. And, you know, as a Black woman working in uh, a very busy work environment, I'm sure that you have had a lot of interactions, like you mentioned earlier, where people say something or do something that is really inappropriate. So I'm curious to hear how you, Rachel, fight within your own work environment as a Black woman to promote anti-racism.
0: Well, I am recently promoted into a position where I'm managing other people. And I have a a wonderful small staff of folks. And I think, Sort of for the first time in my career, I feel like I have a platform to really focus on advancing other people, um, to focus on opening opportunities up for other people, introducing people, making connections, uh, recommending people. Mm. And um, that's a really powerful and exciting role. And I think one of the ways that I think about using that role is really to try to make sure that I offer those opportunities to especially to women and people of color. And I am really into amplifying women and people of color's voices at the workplace. So when I first started at my current job, um, I was in a meeting with another young female manager. And one of the things I noticed that she did was she repeated the statements that other women had made around the table when they got sort of lost in the conversation. She would say, mm-hmm. um, I really want to reiterate the point that Rachel made. I, thought it was a really good point, And then she would reiterate it. She was somebody that had a little bit more power in the context of that meeting mm. and um, really saw an opportunity to both amplify and credit people's work. And I thought mm. that was a really like mundane act, but something that we all have the power to do in the context of our workplaces and, and in other contexts and really struck me as something that I try to remember to do in the context of my, my own work. So I think crediting work is huge. I think also giving people opportunities to shine, um, giving them, you know, a little bit more work than they've done in the past, a little more responsibility, um, new ways to sort of stretch themselves, and the kinds of things that you can really put on a put on a resume, you know, things right. like that. I also think I always make a point of sending notes to people's managers when I've had really good experiences working with them, mm. and just making sure to say that. I think. Yes. I just think it's, it can be hugely impactful in somebody's career trajectory um, when somebody's thinking, oh, who's the right person for this project or this assignment or this promotion mm-hmm. to to sort of have this trail of evidence of someone's excellence is mm-hmm. huge. And I also I had this boss years ago, who's one of the best bosses I've ever had. And when I first started working for him, he was like a He was a really righteous, older white guy who was really interested in using his privilege in the workplace to amplify the voices and opportunities of others. And he Mm. said to me when I first started there, I see it um, as my job as your boss to give you the credit when we succeed and to take the blame when we fail because I have less to lose and less to gain from this work that we're doing. And that is like a really powerful observation to make and something that I think we should all like strive to recognize when we are in positions of power and have, have enough power, enough opportunity, enough privilege to share it with other people who have less.
1: Wow. Yeah. That is such an incredible perspective. I really love that. And I love the way that he worded it too. I think that's something that I will take um, take on myself. I just think that's such a, a sort of eye-opening perspective, you know, to look yeah. at your position of power and to be amplifying the voices of those working with you who maybe are in marginalized positions and understanding that when there is a success, to credit them for that success, will do so much more for their career and will be such a benefit to them but to also acknowledge that when there are hiccups in the ro- in the work and in the role to find ways to to really take responsibility as as a leader in that situation to sort of take some of the heat off of the person who is working alongside you or even working in a position you know where they're working for you to sort of take that that ownership and say, no, this was my project and this was, you know, something that we looked at and we found an area of opportunity that we're going to work on. But this is something that, you know, we're working on together. Right. Totally. What a cool boss.
0: He was an awesome boss. He's one of the best bosses I've ever had. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so one of the things that I'm really interested in talking to you about, you know, we mentioned sort of at the top that you have an incredible 22 month old son named Ernie, who is, just incredibly beautiful and wonderful and such a such a treasure and what I'm interested in hearing from you as a mother is what is your take on you know if you are out with Ernie or you're out with other children in a play date situation what do you do or how would you handle it if kids were to say or do something racist
0: well that's a great question so Ernie's only 22 months old so <laughs> language skills are pretty limited at this right. point um, but I think if my kid were to do something to someone else's child uh, in that kind of a situation, I really feel like quickly apologizing, making sure Mm -hmm. the person who has had something done to them is okay is the most Mm -hmm. important thing that an adult in that situation needs to do. And then I think it's important to not place the burden of sort of this learning experience on the person who has been injured in that situation. Yes. So I think stopping play if you can, bringing your own kid sort of away from the situation and again into a space where they're, you know, not defensive or embarrassed or feel like freaked out about about this other child but really in a place where you can have a focused conversation. And then I think really approaching it with curiosity first. So yes. not saying, "Oh, you can't say that. Don't say that anymore. That's just not nice. We don't mm-hmm. say that." Rather than saying that, you know, really sort of trying to learn a little bit more, you know, where did you learn that? What makes you think that? Um, mm. Tell me more about, you know, what you were thinking when you said that. And then I think really depending on the age of a kid, obviously, trying to help a kid understand why that might hurt somebody else's feelings or asking them how they think it might make somebody else feel to, to hear that sort of a thing. Mm. And I guess just really inviting empathy and being able to imagine yourself in someone else's position. So that's what I think I would do. I, I'm trying to think also of like, you know, I, I think that's sort of in a situation where where someone, where my child has said something something racist or, or hurtful, um, but, but also trying to think about what to do if someone has said something hurtful to my child. And I think that's a really, maybe a harder question.
1: Right, well, we like the sky on fire. <laughs> the sky on fire. <laughs> yeah, that—that's what I do. Right, right, obviously. I mean, that would be my first, <laughs> my first inclination, but
0: <laughs> I think it depends on if it's an adult or a child, right? Who right. Said to my own child, I think. Like, God help me if it's an adult, but. Right. It's right. <laughs> If it's another child, like, again, I think the most important thing is to protect the feelings of the person who's been hurt. And so um, depending on what's happened and depending on how upset, you know, uh, uh, my child or a child that's been hurt is, I think, like, exiting the situation and getting into a safe place is Mm. the most important thing.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's so smart. And I love the way that you said, you know, in each of the the things that you've mentioned here, you kind of keep going back to this idea of really looking at the person who has been injured, the person who has been the target of the inappropriate comment, looking at their feelings and trying to, you know, make your first move in the direction of protecting them. I think that's such an important, an important way to look at this so that, you know, kind of whatever the situation is, putting aside sort of whatever other distractions there might be and saying, okay, first... We need to make sure that you feel safe because you were just spoken to in a way that was inappropriate. And I want to do everything in my power to protect you and make sure that you are okay right now. And I also love the idea of taking the opportunity to approach that situation with children with curiosity. I thought that was such, a, such an eye-opening sort of great way to approach that as instead of saying, we don't say this or we're, you know, we don't do that, that's no wrong. But instead to, you know, not really be inviting shame to the child, but instead to kind of invite this this idea of learning and it kind of ties back into the idea of working towards anti racism doesn't mean that you're perfect. It's not perfection because there's no such thing as each of us being a perfect human and saying saying the right thing, but the idea of kind of of encouraging a child child to say, you know, I want to hear where you sort of got that, that idea or what, what sort of makes you think that way, or what made you sort of feel like that was the right thing to say. And in a way that's non-accusatory, but like you said, is curious and opens the conversation up for an opportunity to learn, Mm -hmm. as opposed to shutting the child down, having that sense of shame and worrying that you're going to say the wrong thing, Uh, I think that really is something that hinders growth. And I think it's so important to be willing to sort of to have those conversations with children where we are saying, you know what, let's sort of try to unearth some of the feelings that you're having and let's try to walk through them and let's try to understand where you're feeling that and where that feeling is kind of originating from so that we can make growth so that we can we can all sort of learn from this situation
0: yeah, and I think also a couple of things. I think when you bring a lot of shame into the equation, you sort of like exoticize these naughty words or naughty feelings, you know? Right, and I right. think it creates this sort of like forbidden allure. And mm. I think that's kind of dangerous, I guess. You know, yes. I think mean, how, how like teenagers do really awful things, you right. know, sort of forbidden space. Um and I also think, you know, at the end of the day, like racism, <laughs> I I think the really pernicious parts of racism are not calling someone a nasty name, but are much more structural. And to me, like calling someone a nasty name is a symptom of a deep structural problem. And I think when you mm. focus on punishing somebody for calling someone a nasty name, you know, and making someone feel ashamed. Shamed and bad about it, you frankly are like scapegoating them. Them, and you know, you really are sidestepping the like deep structural stuff. And right, you know, our kids are like living in this broken society just like we are. They're not right. naughty children if they repeat things that are reflections of what is right. broken about our society. Right. We are naughty parents if we don't, you know, help them understand,
1: mm.
0: understand, and like filter through and make sense of this society that they're living in you know like all kids are going to hear these words and learn these ideas all of them they're all going to be exposed to this and it's our job as parents to like help them make sense of the water that they swim through and the air that they
1: breathe right yeah that is so true. Yes. I, I really, I could not agree with you more. That's incredibly smart. And I think a really helpful way to approach this and way to look at it, you know, I really love that idea of acknowledging that our kids of course are going to be exposed to these things. And instead of kind of, like you said, exoticizing this idea of, you know, this is a naughty word. This, we don't say that, which as you do grow as a kid, we do kind of tend to na- sort of naturally be interested in whatever things we've been told are just flat out wrong, don't do it. Yeah, and, totally. <laughs> right. I mean, that's just, in my head, as a almost 40-year-old adult, still something that when someone says, no, don't do it, there's a part of me that's like, but I want to now. So I think having that understanding of human nature that, you know, absolutely is developing through childhood and say, you know what, just shutting down the conversation and saying no is not really creating an anti-racist environment. And it's also not allowing that child to see the deeper picture, like you said, of the structure that, that they're in, the water they're swimming through. They're not really getting a clear understanding of that, which doesn't really prepare them for adulthood well, because they are going to you know grow to adulthood and join society and whatever that looks like in the next few years you know which who knows but ultimately we can kind of make the assumption that they're going to still be impacted by the systemic aspects of racism within a society so giving them the tools to understand where those feelings are coming from and where those thoughts that they're repeating have kind of originated gives them the opportunity to grow yeah totally i really love your perspective so Let's see. Another thing that I was interested in kind of hearing about in your own home, um, you know, I, I noticed, so we're Facebook friends, just to like clarify this for <laughs> the viewers or listeners rather. Um, and real life friends. <laughs> yeah, we are real life friends and friends on Facebook. And one of the things that I really have been so inspired by in the last few months is your your ability as a member of the workforce and in your home and in your circle of friends um, and in your community to really work towards anti-racism and also to really build um, a community of mutual aid. And it's one of the things that I, I just really have been so inspired by since kind of the onset of COVID-19. Um, you have been just so actively presenting ways that you are there and available to help and assist other people, whether it's running and grabbing groceries for people who are immunocompromised or sharing incredible resources for people. And one of the things that I just think is really cool that I'd love to hear about more is, you know, when you're approaching this idea of, you know, how do I create an anti-racist environment in my home and in my community, I see you doing all of these things actively. And and I'm just curious to hear, you know, how do you go about that? If our listeners are like, okay, well, I want to be available to help my community. I want to be that person that's really actively um, supporting the the anti-racist movement. What can I do?
0: Okay, so you mentioned earlier um, Ijeoma Oluo, and Mm -hmm. she's also uh, someone I admire incredibly as a feminist and as a black woman and as a mother and Mm -hmm. as a brilliant thinker. Um, And I uh, had the opportunity to attend like a panel discussion right after Trump's election, and it was like a really dark time. It was after he was elected but before the inauguration, and it just felt dark, right? Right. December of 2016, and I went to this panel discussion um, at a public library here in Seattle, and it was about uh, it was about the role of media, uh, sort of in in Trump's America, essentially. Um, and uh, Igoma Oluo at the time was uh, doing doing a lot of uh, journalism, and uh, she was on the panel. And at the very end, during the Q and A session, um, someone asked this question that was basically, uh, you know. it's funny that they asked this question then because this feels even more true now, but basically everything is on fire in every direction. Um, Where should a person who cares a lot direct their energy? You know, Mm. we all have uh, a finite amount of energy and resources and connections and like where should we channel it when it feels like there are a lot of things that are hard and wrong with the world around us. Mm. um, What she said it has like stuck with me. uh, And I think about it all the time. She said uh, uh, that each of us should take a look at our own privilege and look Mm. at where our privilege intersects with the oppression of others. And that is where each of us Ah. should be acting. And, I feel like it was like such a profound, like one sentence, uh, of of how we all should like best channel our energies. Right. And so I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I, uh, am really busy. I don't have uh, a ton of money or a ton of power or any particular connections, but, um, I have privileges that a lot of other people don't have in in given situations you know you mentioned like going to the grocery store I feel like I feel like COVID is this situation where there is this giant sort of awful invisible force that is uh like taking people from our communities that is sort of destroying our local economy that is creating like loneliness and illness and suffering. Right? right. And it's really hard to figure out what you're supposed to do in that situation. It's hard to feel like, uh, so disempowered sort of, right. and, but Hey, I go to the grocery store once a week and I have a car and I uh, totally have the ability to go get other people groceries, for right. instance. That's, that's like some small um, flex of my own my own privileges and opportunities. So I guess, I, I mean, that's just like one little example, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess that statement of Ijeoma Oluo's has really stuck with me. And I think about it a lot in terms of activism, you know, in this current moment of just like incredible racism and polarization, I think it's really easy to feel really small um, in the face of like the political tides that are swirling around us. But at the end of the day, I can write letters to my elected officials and I can post those online and post their addresses online and invite people I know, like people like me, moms sitting at home with like, you know, a baby asleep in their laps uh, to do the same thing. And I think none of us has to like, do this alone. It's not like any one of us is going to make deep structural change or affect like the fundamental foundations of this country that have been, uh, you know, operating in one way for 400 years. Right. Um, but but like all of us can take little steps, little actions, actions right. that are totally doable and achievable, and collectively those actions pile up and and make change. Yes. Um, you know, and I really think it's about like it's about sustained energy. It's not about like this massive flashy, like sprint of an activity. I think it's about a marathon and about Mm. staying engaged and sticking around. And um, when you fall down, you know, like getting back up again, like I used to host political postcard writing parties. Right.
1: I remember
0: a long time ago before, uh, before, before the bars were closed. Right. Before I, um, before I had kids, I would have like a happy hour once a month where I would write templates and have postcards and people would, people would write to electeds about current issues. And, and I found maybe a month ago, a big pile of postcards that I had never filled out and written. And so I bought some postcard stamps and I've been like sitting on my couch and writing postcards in the evening.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. It's little things, you know? And I also think like, when it comes to anti-racism, like, I think that there are both the things you can do to affect structural change, but I also think there are things that you can do that are very, like, small and individual that really seek to, like, remediate the effects of structural inequality. So, like, I think, like, the micro idea of reparations and thinking about ways that, like, you can... Offer like material help to someone who has been disadvantaged Mm. by structural racism is huge. Like, you know, even like donating money so that somebody can get groceries or, you know, I don't know, just like helping somebody out, going to the grocery store at this time where it's scary and unsafe to go to the grocery store or uh, helping someone pay their bills because like, let's be real about who has structural wealth in this country. Right? Um, You know, like I think that there are both things that we can and should be doing that like chip away at the structures themselves, but also Like, so I'm talking about voting, obviously, talking about, you know, trying to get your neighbors together to write postcards to your elected officials. I'm talking about marching in the streets. But I also think that there are things that you can do on a very one-to-one level, Mm. like with intention around, like, remediating the effects of
1: structural inequality. That's amazing. Yes. It makes so much sense. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've been so inspired by you, you know, even if I already didn't love you, <laughs> which I do, but even if I just was a, a bystander, one of the things that I've really been so inspired by is your ability to to find these ways to support other people throughout this really difficult time, even though, you know, you yourself are a Black woman living in this society and, and dealing with so much of the structural racism that exists yourself, you have found, like Geoma said, you That's know, that, that, intersection that intersection of whatever of privilege whatever you do privilege have, whatever power you whatever do have, you do have you do and, and wherever that, wherever that racism that is that lying and, and sort of sitting and impacting people around you. And I think that, you know, COVID has been such a big example for all of us of the sort of, you know, Structural inequality that exists. And when you look at the amount of black um, indigenous people of color that have been impacted by COVID versus you know, other races, it really has highlighted the disparity uh, in terms of healthcare and accessibility to healthcare. And I think, you know, there are a lot of ways like you just mentioned where As an individual, we can take action. And instead of just kind of sitting in that place of feeling small um, and feeling kind of voiceless, which is really understandable, considering the day to day barrage of really difficult news, um, but instead of sort of being kind of swept into that sort of wave of chaos, sort of finding ways in in your own world, in your own situations, whether, you know, as nannies, if you're sitting there in a home where you're working with a housekeeper who is maybe not being paid fairly or a housekeeper who's being treated unfairly, you know, looking at ways that you can support that person and use whatever sort of power you may have in your role to sort of be an advocate for that other coworker or to try to support them in some way and provide them with a sense of security in their workplace. And also, you know, writing to elected officials, that's something that, you know, is so easy. And now there are so many templates online and so many really quick ways to do that, where even if you've just got a few minutes a day, it's really possible to be a participant and to be active in in trying to affect these structural changes. Um, And I really love your perspective of looking at the big issue and saying, wow, this is huge this is overwhelming. I am not going to single handedly wash out four hundred years of oppression with my actions, <laughs> and I wish that I could, but you know that that 's not really feasible, but instead looking at okay, how do I work where I am to make change, and how do I inspire other people around me to make change because like you said, that collective voice, that collective action does create change, and I think you know if we look at uh, some of the arrests that have happened in terms of, you know, George Floyd and his murder. If you look at some of the things that have happened as a result of protesting, you know, you can see that the collective voice, many voices together do impact change. Uh, and I think it's it's so important to realize that sometimes our privilege doesn't feel the way that maybe we might imagine privilege of being, you know, a multimillionaire. And, you know, sometimes that's not what privilege looks like. Sometimes yeah. privilege is just you know, in, in a workplace environment, you know, where some of our listeners might be impacted working in the home of their employers, uh, sometimes that privilege might just be that you you speak the language of your employers, you know? You may have coworkers for whom English is a second language or they may not even really feel comfortable speaking English. So your privilege lies in things that maybe isn't uh, as broad and, and huge as you're imagining it. It might be something as, as, as small as, as having the ability to sort of coordinate communication between your boss and other coworkers and it may be as simple as reaching out to you know your neighbors who are immunocompromised or elderly and saying you know what let me run to the grocery store for you you know, let me try to, let me try to minimize the risk for you right now. And that's something that I can do. Maybe I don't have the money to buy your groceries. I wish I could, but let me do whatever I can to try to, to try to reduce the impact. And I really love the way that you approach that. And I just think it's so, so inspiring.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I also think just like, uh, you know, the point that you were making about folks who might have coworkers who don't speak English or are having different experiences than they are. And I think, um, I think sometimes it can be so powerful just to bear witness to what other people are experiencing and to believe them in their own experience and interpretation of what's going on. And um, I have like really, in the last few years come to realize how difficult it is for any of us to imagine that someone in a similar position to us is having a very different experience than we are. Mm. And I think it is so profound to believe and validate and witness the mm. experience that someone else is having in a situ in a situation that you're along with them in it's like it's like this act of sort of accompanying someone in their mm. own experiences and reality and oppression and suffering and being willing to bear witness and like amplify their experiences mm. i think that's really profound and you know i think <laughs> you mentioned george floyd and i think One of the things that is so amazing about this moment is that, like everyone, you know, has this high powered recording device in their pocket 24 hours a day. And suddenly the world cannot pretend that black people are just sort of manufacturing this radically different experience that they're Mm. having with police. And I guess I just, I just think it's such a powerful reminder that just because it has never happened to you in that way, just because you've never seen it with your own eyes, doesn't mean that what people are experiencing isn't real and true and doesn't mean that like your act of bearing witness can't be really profound.
1: Mm. Yes i am nodding my head so much yes <laughs> i agree with that so much and i think that it's such an important point to to acknowledge that your lived experience is going to never be the same as anyone else's lived experience and understanding that your whatever position you're in uh, at work and in interpersonal relationships out at the grocery store acknowledging that when somebody is saying that they're experiencing something that one way that you can support them is simply to believe them yeah. and, and really just to kind of acknowledge that, you know what, maybe that particular comment, I didn't understand why that was upsetting, but I hear you, I witness that, I stand with you, and I want to be here to support you in whatever way I can throughout this situation moving forward. I yeah. think that's so powerful. And I think that's something that, again, you really, you don't have to be in this position of privilege where, you know, again, people might be picturing privilege as being this, like, you know, I'm just the president or this multimillionaire and that's when you need to use your privilege, but instead seeing that, no, I can use my privilege in the most straightforward, simple ways In the the work environment that I'm in, in the relationships that I'm a part of, in in the world and society in general, I can be a sounding board for people, but I can also amplify their voices by saying, I hear you, and I believe you, and I want to do whatever I can to help support you. I I just think that that is so profound.
0: Thank you. Good. I'm glad it resonates. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Well, we have had... A great conversation here we I feel like we could kind of keep going forever but um you know we're sort of supposed to keep this at like a reasonable length here so um is there anything else that you that you wanted to share before we kind of wrap it up here or how are you feeling
0: oh I'm feeling pretty good I think I think these were great questions and I hope that I gave some answers that'll be interesting to folks yes <laughs> yeah
1: Well, thank you so much, Rachel, your perspective, and the way that you move within this world is so incredibly inspiring to me. And I think it will be also inspiring to our listeners. Uh, And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time, um, you know, on a weekend as a busy working mom, to, to sit down and have this conversation with me. So thank you so much for sharing your voice and for sharing your perspective.
0: Thank you, Danielle. It's great to hear your voice and catch up also. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, the privilege is all mine. Thank you. Well, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and uh, we look forward to touching base again soon.
0: Talk to you later.
1: All right. Bye.
0: Bye.